I'm George Galloway, leader of the Workers' Party of Britain, and I, together with my friend and colleague Chris Williamson, founded No to NATO, No to War, with hundreds of others in central London on the 25th of February, since which time we have grown exponentially. The last two of these rallies have reached more than a million, well over a million people worldwide, making these the most significant and well-attended, albeit virtually, uh, anti-war activities taking place anywhere on the planet. So if you're joining us for the first time, you are particularly welcome because we need to grow this movement if we are going to stop the headlong rush into what might become World War III and a nuclear holocaust to end them all. It will knock uh, Mr. Oppenheimer's effort in 1945 on the 6th of August into a cocked hat, or rather, it will knock all of us off the planet altogether. The uh, nuclear bombs that are now in the arsenal of what would be the belligerent parties, Russia, China, the United States, Britain, and France, are each and every one of them a thousand times more deadly, more powerful than the one dropped on Hiroshima uh, on the 6th of August and then on Nagasaki. On that subject, we are holding a protest opposite Downing Street on the 6th of August at 1 p.m., as part of a worldwide uh, manifestation of remembrance, yes, of the disaster that occurred in Japan in 1945 on that day. But in a way, even more importantly, to try and stop it ever happening again and on a scale that would end life on this planet. These vast virtual rallies that we are now holding are picking up momentum partly because no one else appears to be doing anything at all to bring about the end of this lemming-like rush behind some of the most gerontocratic, uh, challenged, mentally challenged people ever to rule significant country in our lifetime. We, for those of us old enough, remember how they mocked people like Leonid Brezhnev, how they mocked the Soviet leader uh, Chernenko. Uh, but both of them were younger than the people that are running the United States today and sitting with the nuclear button on their desk and at the bottom of their bed when they retire. It's chilling to imagine that the fate of all the world is in the hands of Joe Biden. I could speak all night about why that is so, but I think you just need to look at him, look at any of his videos appearing daily, virtually daily on the internet, and you'll see why we are right to be worried about our future and our children's future. This rally is called the Odessa File because of course, we'll talk about other aspects of the danger that we are in, but we wanted to focus on the day that the third phase of the spring, then summer, counteroffensive 
of the Zelensky regime in Kiev was launched in a southeasterly direction. The remains of the reserves of the Ukrainian armed forces, increasingly, indeed now overwhelmingly, conscript soldiers who have been in many cases literally snatched by press gangs in front of their families, out of their jobs, which were reserved occupations, which didn't require them to be at the front, being dragged off in full public glare and with the minimum of training and with a multiplicity of equipment that simply doesn't work one with the other. Poorly armed, poorly armored, sent into a front line which has been described by Ukrainians themselves as nothing more than a mincing machine. Well, they'll never be minced to us. They'll always be human beings to us. They'll always be the young men, and now not so young. People are being snatched at the age of 60 off the streets of Western Ukraine and forced into this war. But the manhood of Ukraine is being butchered in real time as proxies in a NATO war to weaken, divide, and if possible, destroy the Russian Federation. And whilst that might have been something that you could make a case for if you were so inclined months ago, a year ago, it is now self-evident that this war is lost and that therefore every young man sent into the charnel house now is literally being sacrificed for the political leaders like Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck McConnell and the rest, Mitch McConnell. These uh, individuals far away from the fight are the cause of these men being fed into that mincing machine. So it's said that this evening, many thousands, including many hundreds of armored vehicles, are headed for the Russian lines, lines that are rings of steel fortified in unprecedented strength uh, in the Zaprozhye uh, direction. And therefore, our prediction when we set this meeting that the war was moving to the south has already been vindicated. We must hope that the war ends before all those reservists go the way of the two armies that Ukraine has now sacrificed in the last 550 days or so, all the way to the graveyard. But Odessa is, of course, the jewel of the south of Ukraine. It is a place of enormous significance. It was founded by the Empress of Russia, so-called Catherine the Great. She invented it. She laid the first stone and she intended it as a Russian port, second only to St. Petersburg, and one which would be the main portal through which Russian grain exports would leave the country. You'll see the resonance already in that in recent times. After a very short period of time, Odessa became 
the fourth largest Russian city. Those Russian cities were Moscow, St. Petersburg, Odessa, and Warsaw. Who knew Warsaw was once also a Russian city? Warsaw now is, of course, a NATO power, a NATO army of increasing significance and possibly the most dangerously belligerent government of all the Western governments, all the NATO powers. But when Odessa was in its pomp, it was the fourth largest Russian city. Sears, in his magnificent mid-19th century study of Odessa, talks of it as the city of cafes, a cafe culture, uh, generated by the huge number of Jews that lived there. It was at the extremity of the pale, you know the phrase, beyond the pale, the pale of settlement beyond which only Jews could live. And the presence of hundreds of thousands at one point of Jews in Odessa gave it a uniquely Russian and Jewish character that lives on 150 years more uh, later. It is still a city of cafes, of intellectuality, of art, uh, and once upon a time of revolution. It was a significant place in the history of revolutionary Russia when Tsarism was overthrown and the Bolshevik party came to power in the revolution in 1917. But it was occupied in the first days of Barbarossa, in the first days of Nazi and Romanian invasion of southeastern Ukraine, then a part of the Soviet Union. When the Nazis and their Romanian allies entered in 1941, the great city of Odessa, perhaps 150,000 Jews were still living there. By the time the city was liberated by the Red Army in 1944, just 5,000 Jews remained in the city of Odessa. And it's for that reason, and many others, that for many people in Russia, the idea of leaving Odessa again in the hands of swastika-waving, Kraken, Azov, SS insignia inscribed jack-booted fascists loyal to the regime in Kiev is simply unconscionable. And I am one of those who believes that this war will not end without Odessa's liberation and its return to Russia. It is a quintessentially Russian city, and I don't believe this war will end with it still in the hands of the far-right ultra-nationalist and even Nazi forces that are the political power in Kiev. But it has another significance, and here I'll conclude my part of these proceedings. In 2014, those fascists were back on the streets of Odessa, and they murdered, they burned alive, 
48 protesters who had retreated into the trade union center in the city of Odessa. They had sought refuge in the hands of the trade unions of Odessa. And they were torched by Molotov cocktails, torched to death inside that building. Their screams are recorded and can be heard if you can bear it. Some leapt from windows to their death. Others were shot as they managed to escape from the burning building. Others were hunted down and rounded up in the days and weeks after. What happened in 2014? Why were they protesting? It's worth reminding people, though most of you know it, that in 2014, a violent, ultra-violent, US and EU-inspired coup took place in Kiev, torching the parliament building, sending the president, elected president, scurrying for his life out of the country, after which members of the Ukrainian parliament, literally with guns pointed at their heads, were forced to sign decree after decree, outlawing the Russian language and culture, making foreigners of the Ukrainian citizens living in the east and south of the state as was of Ukraine. When people in eastern and southern Ukraine rose up against it, they were mercilessly murdered, not just in the trade union house in Odessa, but on this day, the Memorial Day for the children massacred between 2014 and last year, 14,000 people massacred by the Kiev regime on a daily basis. This is their Memorial Day. This is the day we remember the children of the Donbass slain by our new best friends in the regime in Kiev. Our first speaker this evening is a man who bravely and brilliantly has faced the dangers of photojournalism in that territory of the Donbass, a man who we are privileged to invite to address the meeting now. Dean O'Brien, welcome to No to NATO, No to War. And oh. we much look forward to what you've got to say. Go ahead. Okay, good evening, George, and thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah, so my work initially started about 14 years ago. I was... Um, traveling to Ukraine. I was um, doing a photography degree. I uh, went to university quite late in life. Um, and so Ukraine, even back then, everybody spoke Russian. Um, and I'll fast forward now um, to the Maidan, what happened in 2014. Um, everybody in Ukraine, the, the Ukrainians and Russians live side by side. And the, the, the family set up there often is that uh, people had a Ukrainian uh, mothers, Russian fathers. That was the norm. So when 2014 happened, this uh, the West, which everybody knows, um, in their massive attempt to destabilize the government in Ukraine, which we know they eventually achieved, 
and that drove Ukraine into uh, initially what was a kind of civil war, I suppose, and it took us to where we are today to to a full scale war. It's everything but, you know. Um, people say that Britain aren't involved and everything else, but we know they're training soldiers, are sending weapons there. It, it is kind of like NATO are literally involved with it, really. Um, I'd travelled all over from Odessa, Poltava, Lviv, Kiev. Um, then I started, about 2018, I started wanting to head more towards the east. I went to um, Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, Mariupol, um, right near Ukrainian front positions, and I could you could see the tension. And when I was in Mariupol, they'd obviously got the Azov Battalion headquarters there. I kind of wandered past there and had a look. But the, the Nazism has always been a big thing in Ukraine. It's been very open. They've been uh, been given a free ride to parade in the streets on certain anniversaries. Those, for example, of uh, Stefan Bandera, who we know sided with the Nazis, responsible for killing thousands of Poles and Jews. Uh, but all of a sudden, we're meant to forget all of that. In fact, the Poles are supposed to forget it now, aren't they? Now that lots of Ukrainians mm. are living there. Yeah. So we, it's just a mess at the moment. That's all you could say, a real mess. Well, the people that murdered the Jews in Odessa were Romanians. The SS were, of course, uh, ultimately responsible for the mass killing of Jews in Odessa and indeed uh, for uh, the rest of the Holocaust of the East. But their allies, in this case, in Odessa, the Romanians, were the people who murdered the Jews. And now Romania is a NATO power and we're supposed to regard her as our ally and Russia, who defeated the Nazis, as our enemy. It's a funny old world, you know? It is. It is. Um, yeah, th 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 I mean, our Western media are trying to brainwash everybody and convince people that the right thing to do is to, um, is to pursue this to the bitter end. Whilst we all suffer, whilst we all starve, whilst um, food prices increase... Don't even start me on the energy bills from last year. Everybody freeze and starve for Ukraine. Uh, absolute madness. Uh, it's nice to see that some people are starting to wake up now because initially when the conflict started, well, I say the conflict started, when Russia launched their operation into Ukraine in February 2022, uh, you, you'll know yourself, it was very on trend to um, have a blue and yellow flag on the social media profile. Well, we're starting to see those drop off uh, you're not seeing very many of those now. Um, it, it, it's a bizarre situation, uh, but people in the UK are slowly starting to wake up. But it's another thing trying to get probably boots on the ground, supporting um, demonstrations, that kind of thing. But I think it's coming. It'll have to come sooner or later. Well, of course, all the, all the political parties uh, are fully in support of, uh, of funding, uh, even though we're desperately short of public money for our own people, uh, funding, arming, propagandizing for uh, Zelensky and the regime in Kiev. And therefore, there is literally not a word spoken in Parliament against the war. And when there's nothing being said at all in Parliament, it's very difficult, even if the media wanted to, for another side of the story to emerge. But as the success of these meetings, 
who think, hey, wait a minute, maybe what we are doing or what's being done in our name is not the right thing. We should check it out. I think that's happening right across the so-called Western world, Dean. It is. I mean, when the conflict, well, I say when the Russian operation, uh, we know the conflict's been going on since 2014, but most people in the UK believe it started February 22. So, and that was when people like Twitter came down and they, uh, we had this cancel culture where they were closing social media accounts. I was one of the first. Um, as soon as Putin launched his operation into Ukraine, my Twitter account was closed. Um, it's only just been restored now. But it was it basically, it was to shut people up. Um, as a photographer, you, you, you kind of accept now that um, your work will never be seen publicly, really, because um, you don't fit in. You don't fit in. And, um, you know, it's kind of like that thing. You'll never work in this town again. It's, yeah. it's that kind of it's that kind of thing. And you know what? They can stick it. I don't care. I've got morals. I've got integrity. Um, I'm one of the few people that's been to both sides of this conflict, not worked on one side. I've been to both. Um, so I've got all the evidence there. If they want to see it, they're welcome to come around and I'll show them. But they don't want to, George, because it doesn't suit their narrative. And that's why. So people like myself who shoot on what they call the pro-Russian side, um, in their eyes, you, you, you're to shut up and not exist. Well, nobody saw Van Gogh's work in his lifetime. And look at it now. Dean, thanks for now. We'll come back to you later. Let me introduce the second uh, speaker, uh, fresh from his own show, uh, Patrick Henningsen, one of the most shrewd and careful analysts of these political and military events, a man who is the main uh, talking head and, and main pen of 21st century wire, an indispensable site for the alternative point of view, a man I always am delighted to introduce, Patrick. Uh, welcome back to the platform of No to NATO, No to War, the third iteration of the counteroffensive uh, is said to have begun. Uh, I know that because I read it in the New York Times. Where else? Uh, how do you think that is likely to fare? Any better than the first two iterations? Yeah, the, 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 the first two iterations of the much vaunted counteroffensive um to me were you know they didn't exist on the battlefield they they exist in the media these were these were pr offensives uh by western media in nato member states by the ukrainian government because they're in they're in a sort of feedback loop at the moment where they need to constantly be putting out the idea that things are progressing in order to keep two things flowing of course the money uh and the weapons because uh, without these two things, um, the government or in Kiev is dead in the water, basically. Um, so they're not making any uh, advances at all and haven't been for many months. Um, Russia has fortified their defensive lines uh, pretty pretty well. Um, and in fact, if you look at the if you look at the battle maps over the last month, um, actually, overall, uh, Russia has gained territory. So if this is a, a protracted counteroffensive, 
it's not going very well at all. It's not, there's no counter offensing going on in the counter offensive. So again, we're, we're talking about a, a marketing campaign to keep this war going, this, this open-ended uh, proxy war, just to keep it going a little bit longer uh, until they can figure out, you know, what to do next, whether that's an off ramp or some other, uh, you know, tertiary strategy like uh, moving uh, Polish and, uh, Baltic troops in as a peacekeeping force into Western Ukraine, which is looking increasingly um, unviable uh, for you know not under the NATO banner, but still NATO member states. It's 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 it looks like a, a mess. So I, I really don't think there's any off ramp. There's no military solution, and there's no visible off ramp other than uh, basically calling a halt and negotiating. And people will have to cut their losses at this point. But still, I don't see any signals of this happening, George. And all at the behest of a political class in Washington looking increasingly infirm, uh, to put it as kindly as I possibly can. It is one of the great counter miracles that so many people are ready to march behind a such uh, uncertain, uh, infirm, and uh, mentally challenged uh, political leaders. Yeah, yeah. Th th this is um, this is a, a regrettable period in history. And you know, when we look back at you know the run up to the First World War, and we again we're scratching our heads, saying how how could that have been possible? Um, how could you have this sort of lockstep of uh, really uh, wrong think on the part of national leaders? Um, marching towards the inevitable fait accompli of a war where human capital is completely expendable. In this in this case, that's the that's the Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainian soldiers, and it's just to me a really craven um, effort by the West, very cynical and a very craven effort um, to uh, push Ukraine as the cudgel into Russia. Um, but not willing to sacrifice any of their own men, of course, in any of the NATO member states, and are looking at this really as, a, as an economic opportunity uh, to refill all the military stocks with new gear uh, and to cap recapitalize the military-industrial complex, um, and you, all at the expense of Ukraine as a country. I think they, there was a huge miscalculation by the West. They really believed in their heart of hearts, or at least they told each other that this was going to be the case, that Russia is uh, unorganized, they're incompetent, um, they're not, they don't have a 21st century military, uh, they have an aging tank fleet, uh, and they're, you know, we're going to wear them down with what, what NATO built up, George, as effectively the second biggest fighting force in NATO. That's what the Ukrainian army represented at the beginning of this conflict in uh, February, late February, 2022. So they, they have, they had a bigger force and arguably in terms of ground infantry, better equipped than Turkey. So besides the United States, that's de facto the largest force in NATO. That's where they started and look where they are now. So if that is NATO's, and so just, just putting them together, the, the first, uh, the first two uh, bigger than all of the other NATO member states combined. They, they, all the other NATO member states can't mobilize what Ukraine had on the battlefield at the beginning of this conflict, and they're not there anymore. What happened? They're rebuilding their fourth army right now. What happened to all these men? Many of them are dead. Many of them are casualties. They won't be returning to the field. 
This is a humanitarian, a cultural, a national disaster for Ukraine. And yet Zelensky is being lauded globally as a hero. And this is you're looking at a, a tragic, the tragic uh, disintegration of a country. Uh, but unfortunately, the, uh, this this was this is this was going to be the case once they be, came under the management of the West uh, officially in 2004, February 2014 with the coup in the Maidan. So and, and from there, everything just, you know, is I think has gone downhill for Ukraine as a country. I mean, uh, we knew that they were ready to fight to the last drop of the Ukrainians blood. Uh, and that's actually true of these political leaders, even when they do send their own uh, armies into battle in, in Iraq, they were ready to fight to the last drop of somebody else's blood. But in this case, they're running out of somebody else's, aren't they? They're running out of blood. This is the fourth time uh, they've gone to the well uh, of uh, humanity in Ukraine. They have basically swept anyone. I mean, I even see videos, Patrick, of mentally ill people being drafted, physically disabled people being drafted, people almost as old as myself being drafted, people as young as my sons uh, being drafted. Such people are not soldiers, and there's no time to properly train them. And the equipment isn't working in any case, coming from all these different sources, no interoperability uh, amongst them. It's like a press gang lifting someone off the street outside the, 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 the store. And within a couple of weeks, they're, they're in the mincing machine. What are they going to do when they run out of Ukrainians? <laughs> Yeah, you can send all the weapons in the world, and they have they have plans to, you know, uh, increase uh, ammunition manufacturing in the United States. And you know, by the end of the year, we're going to have X amount of shells per week uh, coming out of our factories. We just plug that gap with cluster bombs in the meantime, but don't worry about that. Uh, illegal weapons, that's okay. But they're going to run out, and Russia will. Unfortunately, they're going to respond in kind. So Russia always escalates. Uh, what like for like. So as soon as they announced the uh, use of cluster munitions in Ukraine, the United States is shipping those in. Uh, Russia said, okay, we'll be using cluster munitions as well. What is that? What's that going to do uh, to the number of Ukrainian troops? They're going to uh, sustain more heavy losses. And this is just going to accelerate the inevitable, uh, which is that they're running out of um, human cannon fodder to throw into the front lines. And so what's going to happen there? Russia will advance a lot easier at that point. And then you have a situation where by the, 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 the only solution is they will have to cede territory or uh, go into a frozen conflict situation. In other words, there's no military path to victory for Ukraine. And in fact, there never was. There never was. And that's the big lie. And you're starting to see the admissions of this now, George, in the media, uh, in the U.S., in the U.K., in Europe. You're starting to see them sort of you know, just kind of, you know, gingerly, uh, carefully coming out, creeping with sort of admissions and doubt uh, that this might have been a bad idea from the from the off. And so I think this is a kind of a delay. I call it a delayed, uh, a delayed um, 
aftershock of reality because they've been living in their propaganda bubble. So they're just now coming to the realization of what we all knew uh, who've been following the real conflict, uh, what we knew 10 months ago. They're just kind of now coming to grips with it. So they haven't fully processed it. And they've been telling each other it's been going great. Victories around the corner. We just need another. Uh, with the high Mars are going to be the game changer, and then it's the uh, the Leopard tanks are going to be the game changer, and then it's going to be the F-16s, then it's going to be the Patriot missiles, the next round of wonder weapons. We just need more weapons. This is the most insane and, in a way, barbaric experiment because that's what it is at the end of the day we can call it a proxy war but what it is is an experiment they've never tried to mechanize and systematize uh, a proxy war like this in history with all of our modern features and, and capabilities of nato they've never done this before and they thought that they could do this and that they could bleed russia that they could wear russia down they believed 18 months ago, people were saying that Putin couldn't sustain this conflict, that he would give up at a certain point. And, 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 the, and here we are. Here we are now. We're going to quickly into 2024, and it's looking worse. How is Russia losing? If they're winning in terms of territory, if Ukraine's emptying out population, uh, if Ukrainian GDP is down, you know, 40%, uh, what's left of the country? How if if Russia's losing? I would hate to see uh, what Russia winning looks like. Um, but this is the delusional uh, propaganda bubble that that people live in the Beltway, that have been living in the mainstream media, that believe their tweets and believe their virtue signaling. That somehow, if they just all tweet enough and NAFO does enough trolling and uh, you know everybody keeps you know uh, keeping the uh, morale high, that somehow Ukraine's going to pull through and Zelensky's there to kind of cheerlead the whole thing. It is gaudy and it's grotesque on a, on a level that I don't think we've ever seen in history. It, it is the scenes when we look back at the highlight reel, the political highlight reel, George, of Zelensky's world tours being being feted by politicians and unfurling the Ukrainian flag in the, in the floor of the U.S. Congress with Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris. It, 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 is, uh, it, uh, it leaves one speechless, George. Gaudy and grotesque. What a wonderful phrase. Thank you for now, Patrick. Let's turn to Dr. Lucy Morgan Edwards. Uh, amongst her many other accomplishments in life, she was the political advisor to the EU's ambassador in war-torn Kabul. And she'll have a thing or two to say about this latest EU-US inspired conflict i'm sure dr lucy thank you very much for uh joining us we haven't uh, i think met before so you are particularly welcome uh, on the platform this evening let me start by asking what is kind of my perennial question now how did europe come to be led to uh, such a self-harming indeed potentially suicidal uh, path by such an unimpressive uh, cadre of leaders in Washington. I've put it maybe unkindly before, uh, you know, following Jack Kennedy might have been one thing, maybe even Bill Clinton uh, would have been one thing. But to go over the cliff for Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, uh, and the rest, it's almost impossible for me to understand how EU governments 
have been swallowed up hook, line and sinker by this whole thing. Do you have an insight into that? Well, George, it's very good to meet you. Um, long been an admirer of yours. You. Uh, I think we're led by political pygmies. I mean, we we have, the I think, the lowest grade of politicians that I remember in my life. The political class, they seem to all be bought and paid for or members of the World Economic Forum and pre-selected, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one thing that's very clear is that the war in Ukraine is going to be an absolute catastrophe, not just for Ukraine, but for Europe, for NATO, for these this political paradigm that we're living under. I think it is going to mark the end of it. And it's going to be uh, an absolutely horrendous ending. I think Zelensky is not going to be able to walk down the street and I think a lot of our politicians as well. Part of the problem, as Patrick said, I, I have long thought that they, the, our political class, and whether that's the USA, NATO, EU, UK, they seem to have a sort of cookie cutter approach to wars. And I, I believe that they thought that with the Ukraine war, which they could fight as a proxy war, thus avoiding putting NATO troops on the ground, that they really believed somehow that that would be a reprisal of the 1980s war in Afghanistan, where they bled Russia, the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union collapsed. They really thought that we still lived in that same era and that the Soviet Union hadn't now become a completely different state with you know good supply chains, good relationships with other countries, the BRICS and so on. And they utterly failed to plan this out, to game this out. And um, so I'm afraid we have we seem to be led by complete donkeys who have no interest in politics, history, economics, uh, and they completely misunderstood how the swift ban for Russia would play out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you had asked, I think in the brief that you'd asked about how the um, my reaction to the the attacks on Odessa and, and the port. So I did, I have been away on holidays and I, I only just heard about this uh, last night. But um, just looking into that today, I mean, basically, I think it was always clear that Russia was going to try to take a large, large part of the Black Sea coast and to leave the rest of Ukraine as a rump state or effectively as a rentier state in a way as Afghanistan has been over the, the years. And this is what's going to happen. I mean, they're not going to be able to export grain, and they're obviously furious about it. Looking at the Daily Telegraph today, I saw that the, um, U the Ukrainian MP for Odessa, one Oleksiy Goncharenko, has written a column in the Telegraph today where he's desperate. He's pushing for an no-fly zone. He's furious. He's trying to push this narrative that, oh, well, this is a great threat to Europe if you don't react and provide the no-fly zone that we need, that Putin's going to take the rest of Europe like dominoes. Um, but obviously, the first casualty of war is the truth. And um, it's hard to know exactly what did ha happen in, in Ukraine, Odessa in, in respect of the national treasures that might have been destroyed or might not have been destroyed or who did them, or who, who bombed what. But it, uh, you know, it. Putin's been very patient. I mean, he entered this this uh, grain deal with the Ukrainians under the auspices of the UN, and has apparently been completely hindered from exporting fertilizers, of which Russia it produces a great great amount, um, to the global south. And so it, it seems obvious that the Russians are going to take out the infrastructure. Obviously, this is an existential 
battle for them. They don't want NATO on their western flank. And um, so they're obviously going to take our infrastructure. This is something that the West did on day one in Iraq and in other countries. Um, you know, Syria and Afghanistan are still suffering from Western sanctions. So for the West to be plugging and, and complaining about Russia bombing this port, it seems incredibly uh, hypocritical. Um, and of course, when you consider what they did with Iraq, Libya, etc., etc., the, the decimation of infrastructure on day one. And I think you ask, where did this come from? I think it's important that people understand that this has been a plan long in the making. I mean, I was listening to Jeffrey Sachs on the Duran earlier. He had talked about Brzezinski's book or an article he wrote in Foreign Affairs back in 1997 for the Council on Foreign Relations, where they were talking about the plan for admitting which countries into NATO and when. And he was saying that Vicky Newland, Cookie Newland, has been involved at every stage since then. Um, I think people are unaware of who the neoconservatives are. It's really important that they they understand that so many of the, the, the wars in the war on terror that followed the events of 9-11 had been planned in advance. And, and this was something that General Wesley Clark has actually sort of whistleblown back in, I think it's 2007. He said on the day after 9-11, he was told by one of his former colleagues in the Pentagon that there was a plan to take out seven countries in five years. And this has always been a plan of the Kagan and Newland family from the beginning. And if people are interested, there, there was a very good documentary which focused heavily on Ukraine, which I watched in about 2016 or 17. It's called A Very Heavy Agenda. And it's about the, neo, the neocons and how they operate and how they have seized control of the levers of power in terms of policy making in Washington, D.C. And these are crazy people. They're not going to give up. They have no off ramp. They, as Dr. Sachs was saying, they're pretty stupid. I mean, they don't seem to be able to game out or play uh, to foresee how when their mistakes lead to failures, what's going to be the next um situation in in this and how it's going to escalate really really dangerously so um i think uh you know it's important that people understand the role of the neoconservatives in in all of this going back pre 9-11 and of course involvement in 9-11 itself and um understand you know when, when this all does come to an end and it is going to come to an end on the battlefield ultimately unfortunately it doesn't seem that it's going to be a negotiated settlement um, unless we, I mean, unless it ends with the US elections and Trump or uh, RFK Jr. getting into office, I, I, I'd see a very, very poor ending for Ukraine and, and for the rest of Europe and, and indeed the world potentially if this escalates. Doctor, what about the United Nations? Uh, has this current uh, Secretary General, has he got a fear of flying or something? Uh, in my lifetime, uh, it would be the norm, even just to make himself look important uh, and, uh, and, and provide some justification for his position, the Secretary General of the UN would never be off the news demanding ceasefires and talks and shuttling between capitals and so on. Hmm. I think most people don't even know, I'm not even sure, entirely sure that I do know myself who the Secretary General of the UN now is. I can right. tell you the last five, 
but I'm not sure I could properly guess the name of this one. What happened to the UN? Well, Antonio Gutierrez, I'm afraid, is a sort of WEF acolyte. He's there to implement Agenda 2030, which I'm, I'm here in Geneva. It's all going on around me. I mean, the UN are pushing the climate stuff. They're pushing, they're all running around talking about climate emergency. I mean, you know, they're all bureaucrats pushing climate stuff when none of them have a real background in environmentalism. Um, Gutierrez is a disgrace. He's no Kofi Annan. He's not a man of peace. He is... Um, Completely absent, isn't he? You're right. That's a, it's an excellent point to make. It seems that there is no one who's really going to wade in at the moment. Um, and we're sort of destined to have to wait until the end of 2024 when we potentially have a new president. But then you have others like um, Martin Armstrong who are saying they're going to suspend the elections and they're going to use the war as an excuse. And they want to escalate and take it to China. So um, unless we develop more of a peace movement, we're going to be in a very, very dangerous situation in, in the world. And there, there just seems to be no one to to intervene and to stop that, unfortunately, and, and least of all the United Nations, I'm afraid. So the ending in Kabul was ignominious, uh, but they didn't learn any lessons from it, did they? they Obviously not. <laughs> they have uh, gone and, and done it all over again. And the same analysts and correspondents and talking heads uh, who talked us into all the previous disasters are still holding fast on on this one. Was, was Einstein said doing the same thing over and over again is and expecting a different outcome is the very definition of madness. Have they all gone mad, doctor? I, I find it astonishing when I see that Con Coughlin, that he's a joke of a man, is still writing for the Daily Telegraph, pushing escalation, pushing war. Hamish de Breton Gordon, I, I'm not sure if he's with the Times. Um, you know, it's incredible. Simon that these, Tisdall in The Guardian. Absolutely. That these the, people the, face no consequences. It's appalling. They have been completely, and of course, they're all banging on about what re weapons need to be used to, to win the war. They seem to have no understanding of the political situation on the ground, or as you were saying earlier, the 14,000 people who died between 2014 and 2022 in, in the Donbass area. And I have a friend, and I, I was grateful that... Um, that Dean brought up his experience as a photojournalist and how he was completely, you know, he can't get his photographs printed in the mainstream media because that is the way it works. I, I was a freelance journalist in Afghanistan prior to working for the EU. Um, and, it, you know, I had the same experience. And in mm -hmm. fact, and I had the same experience when I was trying to get my book published on my experiences of, of the intervention in Afghanistan. I ultimately had to self-publish it so that I could maintain control. Uh, because they're all these kind of MI6 hangouts posing as agents and so on, and um, asking me if I knew Rory Stewart, as you know, as though he's the sort of um, the, the 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 kind of what, the gate the guru, <laughs> yeah, the guru. the guru, which he of course isn't. But I and I also had a friend who who had been in the Donbass in 2014 as a journalist, and she said it's ridiculous. They're not they're not publishing both sides of this story. They're only interested in the perspective from Kiev. She thought that was outrageous at the time. Well, it's outrageously uh, unanimous now in the media. No, none of us will be in the media, neither you 
nor me, nor Dean's uh, photographs. Uh, how do we get your book? Uh, I, you didn't ask me to plug it, but I'd like to read it. Oh, bless you, George. It's called The Afghan Solution, The Inside Story of Abdul Haq, the CIA, and how Western hubris lost Afghanistan. I'll show you what it looks like, actually. It's, yeah. I don't know if you can see it here. I'm afraid it's on Amazon. Um, well, don't but be afraid. I'll get a, it on Amazon. That's probably yeah. the easiest place to get it. Some shops are still selling it, um, but it's a kind of detailed uh, walkthrough of the, what, what happened in Afghanistan. A star is born, Lucy. Thank you for joining us. Our uh, final speaker uh, this evening uh, is uh, an old friend of mine, many times a guest on my television show on uh, Al Maidin television called Kalima Horra. We often cross swords, but this time our swords are pointing in the same direction against the swords. He's Dr. Niall McRae, author, analyst, extraordinaire. Dr. Niall, thank you for. Uh, joining us. The floor is yours. You've heard the foregoing uh, speeches. How, how would you respond? Well, Russia has always been an intrigue of mine. Um, and like Jordan Peterson, my bookshelves are full of Russian history and culture. And I've done some traveling uh, in that vast nation. But uh, going back to my childhood, um, our family home uh, in Gurukh on the west of Scotland, uh, our view across the River Clyde um, featured the US nuclear submarine base at uh, Holy Loch. And this would have been a prime target in the Cold War. So I grew up um, in, in this context and believing back then that the Americans were the good guys, not the caricatured capitalists depicted by communist regimes or the great Satan as chanted by uh, Middle Eastern fanatics. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, NATO should, of course, have retired. And instead, the military industrial complex was unleashed, striking Yugoslavia. And I was shocked by the scenes from Belgrade, having thought that mass aerial bombing of European cities was consigned to the history books. And the barrage delivered to the Serbians was also a message for the Kremlin. Either you acquiesce to the rules-based international order or be frozen out. Uh, presidential advisor Shmigniew Berzhizhinsky uh, in his book, The Grand Chessboard in 1998, envisaged Russia split into six separate countries, its natural resources to be managed and plundered by the West. But Putin saw the trap and he began to rebuild Russia from its um, post-communist chaos. And since then, um, Russia has been cast as the enemy of freedom, democracy, minority rights and the climate agenda. And after the Skripal poisoning farce, uh, Russia was demonized by Integrity Initiative, which is the British Security Service's media propaganda operation, and uh, blaming it for Brexit and Donald Trump. Now, as the tanks rumbled into Ukraine a year ago, it was readily apparent to me that Western media coverage and politician statements were hyperbolic and provocative. Uh, when the Ukrainians and Russians 
negotiated in spring 2022, Boris Johnson was flown out to um, stop a peace deal. The West is hell-bent on escalation, risking World War III. Now, in George Orwell's 1984, the world is divided into three powers, Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. So we in Oceania are alternately at war with Eurasia, which of course is Russia, and East Asia, China. And what's happening now, I believe, was planned a long time ago. Orwell was an acquaintance of Alistair Crowley, the occultist and British secret agent who had connections in every court. Crowley knew, in fact, what Orwell wrote in fiction. Now, obviously, the aim is to destroy Russia, but the EU is unwittingly participating in its own downfall. The severing of the Nord Stream pipeline is more damaging to Germany than to Russia. This act was predicted by the White House before the war started. Europe is being strangled by socioeconomically devastating net zero policies, energy shortages, deindustrialization, and depletion of its military arsenal. In its hubris, the EU believes that its model of post-nation government will become the global political system alongside expansion of NATO as a global military force. But it's not the EU that's running the show. It's the Washington deep state and British aristocracy via Chatham House and the Council on Foreign Relations. Europe, as in the First and Second World Wars, is deliberately being weakened with its material and intellectual assets to be harnessed to global technocracy. So while Western governments are wasting our public money on a futile conflict, Putin is looking after his people. And that includes the persecuted citizens of Eastern Ukraine. Back in 2002, I stayed with a family in Tambov on the eastern edge of Black Earth country, which is a fertile land covering most of Ukraine and the Don Valley. Large queues snaked around the local government office. Visas had been made a requirement for visiting friends and family across a previously open and irrelevant border. And later, Ukraine stopped issuing tourist visas to Russians visiting Kiev, which is a city steeped in the heritage of Holy Russia. This tension was provoked by the West. The very meaning of Ukraine is borderland. Mother Russia will not abandon its children, and she has the courage of conviction. It'd be better for everyone to seek peace now before millions of innocent people die in the globalists' proxy war. So I say, niet to NATO. Fantastic, Nal. Uh, almost so good that I would I'd wind the meeting up here. Now. <laughs> I did promise uh, everyone that we would go back to them. So let me go back first, if I may, to Patrick Henningson of 21st Century Wire. Uh, Patrick, uh, on that uh, on that point, have you any uh, sensibility of what public opinion is like in Ukraine? We know in the areas that were liberated and then had referenda that the people overwhelmingly voted to 
to rejoin Russia, as it were. But I'm thinking in the areas still under the control, like Odessa, uh, it's almost impossible to believe that there are not substantial numbers of people, even in Western Ukraine, that are thinking to themselves, you know, maybe we poked that bear just one too many times. And it's brought about the complete destruction uh, of our country. Our sons are either at the front being killed or have run away to Marbella uh, with, the, with the family Porsche. Uh, it is, it's, it's hardly been a success for the political class in Ukraine, has it? It, it hasn't. That's, that's the main point, George. What you're bringing up is that we keep saying that this is, or the West are saying, the, the, the paradigm here is this is, author, is about authoritarianism versus democracy. And Ukraine represents democracy, Russia, the authoritarianism. So it's basically, this is a rehash of uh, capitalism versus communism during the Cold War or, you know, the free world versus uh, Islamic terror. It's, it's a new paradigm. So that's the question. When, when, how, how do you get democracy in the Ukraine? Because there has to be a referendum on the war. Now, polling has come out recently. You've probably seen the polling. They claim that 70-something uh, percent of Ukrainians want to continue with the war. They don't want to cede any territory. Now, I have not looked at the methodology of those polls closely but i do think that you know that, that would be worth investigating but i certainly can't see if you had a presidential election in ukraine let's say in the fall in a few months time i i just can't imagine it being a winning campaign to say let's we need to keep going we've lost uh, 300,000 men we've lost a third of our territory but we need to carry on we're going to turn this around i don't see that as a winning campaign so but elections are suspended so there, so there's not going to be an election that where where the election would be a referendum on on the conflict it would of course it would uh and it would give people an opportunity to speak you don't have that so you don't you, now you have a, an atmosphere that's very hostile uh, to opposition in Ukraine. You don't have opposition media. Those have been outlawed. Uh, you don't have any opposition voices in the in the, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, you don't have any uh, independent journalists anymore. That doesn't, doesn't exist. So how would you really know the public sentiment? And, and with so many people outside the country now, like uh, 15 million diaspora through, uh, spread throughout the EU and beyond, um, and you know what? What's their their opinion will be different than the Ukrainians who are still in the country. I would think they would the, the people outside would be at, at a safe distance, more pro NATO, more pro Zelensky. Let's carry on with the war. We're going to beat Russia if we just get the new uh, missiles or weapons or whatever F-16. So that's the that's the key point because we keep saying what the West says. We're the Ukrainians want to keep fighting, so we're going to keep giving them weapons. Who are the Ukrainians? Is this the, the regime in Kiev? Is, is it Zelensky and his uh, production team? Uh, is, you know, who is the Ukrainians? Could be, because I'll bet you if you polled the military, they'd have a very different opinion. People in militaries, period, um, are, are not necessarily pro-war, especially when you're on the losing end of it. There has to be another diplomatic solution or something that it should be offered at least as an option to what's left of Ukraine. Of course, the longer this goes on, that's going to be a smaller and smaller uh, country. 
So that that that's the point here. And I, I really don't believe uh, a lot of the polling I'm seeing, you know, where 70% of who? I don't know. And, and are, are these people outside of Ukraine? So the, there's a lot of questions, George. Well, thanks, uh, Patrick. Uh, as always, I think you'll be chairing these meetings uh, through August uh, and uh, look forward to being able to watch them, at least on uh, catch up. But I'll not be able myself to participate uh, in them. So thank you in advance for that, too. Uh, Dr. Lucy, I wouldn't answer a pollster uh, in, in Kiev in the negative. Uh, about uh, Zelensky and his war, you might end up like Gonzalo Lira uh, being uh, cast into a dungeon at best, murdered at worst, if you were to evince any uh, dissident views. People are sentenced to death. People are disappeared. People are uh, murdered uh, just for being uh, skeptical as to where this is all going, including people very close to Zelensky. It's a, a dangerous time to be in Kiev, for sure. This, you witnessed the fall of Kabul, which happened apparently overnight. Uh, do you think the fall of Kiev might be the same? I'm not saying fall to the Russians, but fall to perhaps some coup, some revolution in Western Ukraine itself? Yes, it seems as though the end is probably going to come slowly and then very swiftly. Um, and I imagine the Americans might be, or the military advisors and NATO military advisors, etc., and the mercenaries, whoever's left, might well be leaving in a helicopter off the roof of their embassy like they did in Vietnam. Uh, they, you know, as with the downfall of Ashraf Ghani, I wasn't actually there when it happened, but I was expecting it for months before it did. Uh, you know, it, it came very swiftly. And he, he'd said a couple of days before, apparently, that he intended to to ne never to leave Kabul. And, and then he fled. So um, I can imagine that Zelensky is going to find it very difficult to find anywhere to be safe at the end of all of this, because on his hands is the blood of hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands at least of, of young and, and older Ukrainians. And it's, a, it's an absolute disaster for, for that country. So, um, yeah, it's, I think there are going to be a lot of similarities. Ashraf Ghani left with a lot of luggage, of course, most of it of the paper folding variety. Yeah. Uh, I suspect that, uh, that Zelensky has already uh, exported his, uh, his wealth so that he's uh, traveling light when he eventually flees. Well, I, I've heard that he's bought a lot of property. He's got property in Italy, property in Miami. I expect he's got some kind of safe haven in the UK because they seem to be his greatest supporters until uh, the comments by um, Wallace a couple of weeks ago about Amazon. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he's got a place to go in London. Who knows? Yes, London, although the weather's better in Florida, it may suit mm. him uh, better. Dr. Lucy Morgan Edwards, I don't know how we've gone so long without ever meeting each other. I'm sure and I hope it won't be long before you and I are on a platform together again. Thank you very great. much indeed for joining us. Let's go to uh, Dean O'Brien, uh, a brave and brilliant photojournalist who is now effectively blacklisted 
from uh, from the mass media. Never mind, Dino. So am I. Uh, but actually, yeah. we've got bigger audiences than the so-called mass media. What do you think of the meeting and what you've heard so far? Oh, it's brilliant, George. I mean, I'm really surprised that a political party has actually come out. Like, I mean, I think you're the only one that's actually come out in in support of um, stopping this conflict. I mean, it, I, I was even surprised. I was talking to um, one of your colleagues from the Workers' Party um, last week about um, the fact that even in Ireland, Sinn Féin are behind Ukraine. I mean, it's such a madness. Um you know, and you're the only party that is actually speaking out and speaking the, the proper truth. It's not what the government want to hear. It's not what want some, some people want to hear, but it is the truth. So I really appreciate that a party like yourself is coming forward and uh, putting it out there to people. I'm much obliged to you, Dean, and thanks uh, for your appearance this evening. Uh, although the Workers' Party and Chris Williamson now also in the Workers' Party, uh, started no to NATO, no to war. We're very much broader than that, and we need to be very much broader than that. We need people uh, of the so-called left, right, and centre uh, behind the sensible demand to stop the war, a war which is costing the lives and blood and treasure, not just of the people of Ukraine, but the people of our own countries uh, also. Dr. Nile, last word uh, to you. Um, it's admirable indeed that you, uh, that you can see the Russian point of view. It's not necessary to accept it. It's not necessary to support the Russian action. But to call it unprovoked is one of the biggest lies in history, isn't it? Not only was it provoked, it's been being provoked since Bill Clinton began expanding NATO in an eastward direction in complete contradiction to the promises made to the Russian leadership, Gorbachev in particular, when he agreed to withdraw Russian forces from eastern Germany. Yes, of course, it's a big lie. And I don't think there can be any of the 650 MPs in Westminster who don't know that this is a lie, that the, the war just started in February 2022 when uh, Putin uh, decided to start invading um, Europe. <laughs> you know, MPs have got no excuse. People in the media, especially so-called quality uh, newspapers, um, have got no excuse. So that leaves us with the question is, why are they maintaining this lie? Um, and it's not just about the Ukraine war that we can ask that question. We can ask that about, you know, net zero and the, 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 the climate change um, crisis and many other things as well. And something that I did uh, recently, George, was I um, asked uh, readers of um, three uh, alternative media, that's Conservative Woman, The Lights newspaper, and Unity News Network, um, to send a list of 10 questions to their MPs. 
and um, they were on all kinds of things that people didn't vote for, and yet policies that are being um, enacted anyway. And it doesn't matter if you've got uh, a Labour government coming in because they will just do exactly the same. It's like a uni party. There was one of those questions on Ukraine, and uh, the, the the answers. There was actually anger from the MPs that any of their uh, you know, it, one of their constituents was challenging them on, on this, you know, moral crusade that, um, that, that, that the West is on against this um, uh, regressive um, uh, 1930s style di dictatorship um, in, in Moscow. But I, I'm still left to the question. I'm still bemused, George, as to how MPs and uh, people who should know better are acting as if there's only one single truth here. It, it, it's quite baffling. Baffling, uh, unless you know them as well as I do. Dr. Niall McCree and all our participants this evening and uh, those, Chris Murphy and Sean Bloor uh, and all those who work behind the scenes to bring this broadcast to you, a big thank you. But most of all, a uh, big thank you to you for watching it and a request from me uh, that you do your best to spread the word, not just about these broadcasts, but about the existence of no to NATO, no to war, and spread the message that we stand for if you yourself already agree with it. Thank you and stay tuned. There'll be another one of these along in a couple of weeks, chaired by Patrick Henningson. I know, because I know him well, ably and eloquently. I'm George Galloway, bidding you good night.